Hi, this is Bob Heiler of the Bankruptcy Law Success Podcast, where we introduce you to successful bankruptcy lawyers, as well as powerful ideas that can transform your bankruptcy practice. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Hoverson, a bankruptcy attorney in Minneapolis. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Oh, good morning, Bob. So you first came to my attention because you identify yourself as a student loan attorney on some parts of your website. I know that you're a bankruptcy lawyer, but maybe we could start by just talking about some of the work that you do with student loans. Well, with student loans, I first started, I've been practicing for about 31 years now, and mainly bankruptcy and consumer protection and some civil litigation. But uh, way back when I started doing bankruptcies, I was handling student loan cases back then, mainly uh, in the context of bankruptcy, and that was with undue hardships. Mm-hmm. You may or may not recall, when I started in 1986, Chapter 7's You could discharge a student loan if it was a stale student loan. Back, uh, I I don't know the sequence of the years, but it started out if the student loan was 10 years old from the date it became due, it was, pardon me, instead of 10 years, it started, if a student loan was, yeah, 10 years old, you could discharge in a bankruptcy, a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Then uh, Congress amended the bankruptcy code to shorten that to seven years, and then, then I believe it went to five years, and then they abolished it entirely as far as a stale student loan. And that left, essentially, you could discharge a student loan under undue hardship, was, which was very factual intensive. Mm-hmm. Likewise, which was just as important in a Chapter 13 bankruptcy, a wage earner plan, you could put a cha- your uh, student loan debt in the plan in most plans were what we called the composition plans where you weren't paying your credits 100 cents on a dollar, might be 5, 10, 20 cents on a dollar. You could put the, uh, any student loan, federal or private student loans, in the Chapter 13 plan and discharge those upon successful completion in a plan which is either three or five years. And that was a very powerful tool to, tool to deal with student loans. Mm-hmm. That was eliminated in the Chapter 13 context, I believe it was 1989 or 90, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. So uh, over the years, it's gotten more and more difficult to deal with student loans in the context of bankruptcy. And so I started finding out other ways to help my clients with student loan debt because the majority of my clients have student loan debt. And one of the things I did was three years ago, I attended a workshop uh, put on by Joshua Cohen, mm-hmm. who was known nationally to deal with student loans, not, not only in bankruptcy, but mainly alternatives outside of bankruptcy, administrative remedies for federal loans and other remedies for private student loans, such as uh, litigation and, and other other methods. So that's that's kind of what got me into there. And then uh, if you want to go into specifics of other areas, we can do that too. Sure. So I've heard kind of mixed things about that student loan course. I've, well, I, I'll start by saying that I've heard that you learn a lot at that course. So I'm not questioning whether you learn a lot at the course. The question is whether you can build a successful practice doing things like income-based repayment plans. Have you tried charging clients directly to put them into income-based repayment plans, and has that worked for you? Yes. The thing is, with some of those administrative remedies on the federal loans, some of your potential clients have already done quite a bit of research and and can do it themselves. Other people need some hand-holding and taking them through it, because it's not as simple as just filling the form out. And sometimes these people you're dealing with, with the uh, loan servicers, are not always looking out for your best interest. Yeah. There, there's a lot of different types of 
in, income based. There's uh, in, income contingent repayment, income based repayment, uh, new pay, a, a few different ones, and some of them it depends on when the loan was taken out and, and things of that nature. So I guess to answer your question, some people can do it themselves. Themselves, some need help. What I do essentially is. I offer a free consultation because I have no idea what what their situation is till we till we sit down or talk on the phone what they have and, and quite frankly when I get a call from a person they don't know what they have for student loans if I ask if it's federal or private I got a bunch of loans it's over a hundred thousand I don't know what's going on mm-hmm. so you got to start kind of to the basics and fundamentals so I uh, instruct them to go get a, a report on their federal student loans, which is uh, through NSLDS, and that'll sh- show every federal student loan or grant they've ever had and the status of that loan and who's servicing it, or if it's in collections, what have you. Mm-hmm. So th- that's usually 99% accurate, so you can at least get your hands on what they have for student loans there. Then for the private loans, that's tougher. Get letters they have, pull a credit report. But but half the battle is just figuring out what they have. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can be extremely difficult. And so once you get that kind of laid out, then you figure out, you know, what can we do? If they're being garnished, that it makes it real tough. Then they typically need an attorney mm-hmm. because the you're not stopping that garnishment. The only way you can stop the garnishment is with a um, bankruptcy. A, a bankruptcy, or you need to get the loan out of default. To get it out of default. You either consolidate or you can rehabilitate. Typically, you're rehabilitating. And to rehabilitate, so now they're getting garnished. You're getting 15% of their wages taken. This is administrative, no legal action, nothing. Just right right off the bat if they're W-2'd and they're being garnished. So now what you're doing is you're going to try and get them in rehabilitation. Well, rehabilitation is nine payments out of 10 months. And there's a payment established. So in, in addition to 15% being garnished, now they're going to have to pay another amount that's determined by you, uh, the consumer, or your attorney. This is where you really need an attorney because you, you can negotiate that payment. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of room to negotiate it because, quite frankly, they usually don't have nothing to pay for this other payment. Well, you, you, you go five months into the rehabilitation program, then they'll stop the garnishment. Mm-hmm. Then you have to complete your rehabilitation which is nine months, nine of 10. And then you, you, it gets, you take it from the debt collector, you go pick a servicer, and then depending upon the status alone, if they haven't been consolidated or whatever, you, you're generally going to be consolidating for the most part all of these federal loans, assuming you can do it, they meet the requirements. And then you're going to pick your income-based repayment program and get them into it. So it's a process. But if circling back to your question, if they're in good standing, say, say they're in deferment or forbearance, or they've just been making payments and you don't have to go through dealing with the garnishment or rehabilitation if it's in default, some of your clients can do that in, in, in without much difficulty. But I found, if uh, for the most part, a lot of people do want help mm-hmm. because after you get it set up, the, the initial part is, is where all the work is done. After they're into the program, then they have to recertify every year. Yeah. And typically, the servicer that you're dealing with will give you about a one or two month notification so you can recertify. And that part's not all that difficult because essentially on these income-based programs, uh, it comes down to your adjusted gross income on your tax return and the size of your family. Mm-hmm. But there again, somebody without 
legal counsel might not know some things you can do. For instance, if you're married and your spouse who does not have the student loans has a significant income, that is a detriment to you who in the IBR program or any of these income-based programs because they're taking, they're including your spouse's income and adjusted gross income. Mm -hmm. So it can make, it can be a big, big difference. So I'll have people call me and say, Hey, even though you might have a little hit on refunds or what have you, you better start filing separate returns. Wife is making 10 grand a year. Husband's making 90. So file, file separate returns. Now we got adjusted gross income of something under 10 grand Mm -hmm. and wife can, let's say they have three kids. Wife can still, even if you don't claim the three kids on a tax return, if she's paying for half their support, you can claim that as the size of your family. Mm -hmm. Because again, it's a function. This number is a function of the size of your family and your adjusted gross income. Mm -hmm. So that part, most, most of your uh, student loan debtors out there are not going to know that, you know, to sometimes split up the tax return. So that's one other element there. You know, dealing. Well, I can absolutely see how you're adding value to the lives of your clients. I guess the on the flip side, what I'm wondering is, are you able to make this a viable practice area? So let me give you an example. I recently spoke to an attorney who gives advice for for all kinds of loans, but when she gives advice for uh, federal loans and does an income-based repayment program, she charges a fixed fee of several hundred dollars to get them into the to the right income-based re- re- repayment program and, and to give the kind of advice that you've described. Is that a business model that's worked for you, like a fixed fee, or do you charge hourly? How do you, how do you charge for this kind of work? Yeah, on, the, on, on my federal loans, unless there's litigation, I, I will establish a, a fixed flat fee and again, if if they're not being garnished or if they're not in default and I just have to do the uh, get them into the right program, the fee is going to be less because they're my client for a few months. Mm-hmm. If I've got to rehabilitate the loan and then consolidate and then get them in an income-based program, they're my client for over a year. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to be more work and more more fees involved. But yeah, for the most part with my practice dealing with the federal student loans, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a flat fee, but I do have some other unique cases. For instance, I've got a, a person not to get off track, but no, go ahead. Uh, she was a client oh, five, six years ago, and she had a bank for years and years ago where you could discharge the student loans if they were stale. And she had a relative to her bankruptcy and there's some bankruptcy litigation. And in her eyes, she thought she resolved everything way back 10, 15 years ago in a bankruptcy, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, she starts getting calls from a collection agency trying to collect on these student loans that she believed was all resolved with their bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So then I get involved, write letters, I demand uh, documentation, promissory notes and accountings. Nobody responds, nobody responds. This goes on for a year. And then they finally say the loans got sent back to the Department of Education. We're done with it. So we thought we were done. Four years go by, I think now, and just last fall, she gets contacted by the U.S. Department of Education for the offset program where we're going to seize uh, tax refunds now and take your Social Security when you become retired. So we, she got me involved and came back to me, had her file. We 
we responded to that and asked, uh, you know, to, we were disputing the whole thing, had records and, you know, showing that th- these were dealt with in her bankruptcy. And we're still, we asked for a, a hearing. We have an administrative hearing over the phone coming up. But that just, that, that's kind of a nightmarish case where these federal loans, the left hand and right hand do not know what's going on. And these are old, old loans, you know, and there's no statute of limitations. Statute of limitations went away, I believe, in 1990 or 91. Mm-hmm. There used to be a 20-year statute of limitations. So so she, here she has to still get an attorney involved to deal with this, with this garbage. And in that type of case, I'm charging hourly because yeah. I have no idea how much time I'm, I'm dealing with. But mm-hmm. back, back to the administrative remedies where they're, uh, newer loans and not a lingering issue like that. Yeah, it's a flat fee. It's mm-hmm. something that the client can do reasonably. You know, is that? Can you give us a range on, on like what that fee is? Just you know, you're talking to other bankruptcy attorneys, and everyone's wondering, you know, how much should I charge? Is it more than five hundred dollars or less than five hundred dollars? Yeah, yeah, I'm. Yeah, typically it on the uh, it depends how many loans they have. But to, if they're not if they're not in default. And I don't have to rehabilitate them if they're not being garnished. You're looking at seven fifty to a thousand. Okay. If I've got to, if they're being garnished and I've got to take them all the way, you know, through four steps, you know, I'm typically charging fifteen hundred bucks, sometimes a little more. Mm-hmm. So, so that's kind of how I handle uh, those matters. You realize a lot of these people, you know, don't have a lot um, of money, and but but they still need help to deal with this stuff. I mean, it, it's a nightmare. Yeah. Do you have an escape hatch in your contract so that if something like that scenario that you just described with, you know, 20 year statutes, of limit, 20 year statute of limitations, and you think that the case is dead and then it comes back four years later, do you have any escape hatches to convert people to hourly? Well, that was an hourly case. Yeah, that was an hourly. Yeah. See, do, do, dealing with these administrative remedies, I mean, it's not rocket science. You're going to I mean, there's not, unless somehow litigation would come up, then you'd, yeah, you, you, you know, you get something in your retainer agreement that, you know, if it turns into litigation, it's going to be hourly. But, you know, again, if you've done a few of these, you know that if they're being garnished, uh, unless you're going to contest the garnishment and ask for an appeal, and, you know, then you're looking at hourly probably. Yeah. But otherwise, you know, you kind of have an idea how much you've, if you've done, if, you know, the first few are going to take you a lot more time. Mm-hmm. But once you've got it established and, and you're going through this, um, you kind of figure out how much time you're going to have in it. Cool. You know. One of the one of the things that I've realized interviewing so many bankruptcy attorneys is that they kind of divide into two categories. And one is the litigators or former litigators. And one is the the non-litigators, the kind of the more the people that are more focused on the process of filling out forms. One of the cool things with you is that you're a litigator. I've noticed that litigators are much more likely to get involved in FCRA cases, FDCPA cases, TCPA cases. What's the deal for you on in terms of those sorts of cases? Well, I mainly if there's FDCPA, you know, I'll, I'll get into it. I used to refer all that out, mm-hmm. quite frankly years ago when I, when I was busy with bankruptcy, I mean, I really focused on bankruptcy and stuck to bankruptcy filing and bankruptcy litigation, adversary proceedings, what have you, mm-hmm. and FDCPA and other uh, collateral matters like that, I'd, I'd farm out. If I have it today, I'm going to, you know, look at it and pursue it more than likely, mainly with the private student loans and some of the litigation, if it's there, if we're trying to uh, do adversary proceedings with, with private loans and there's FDCPA elements there, then we'll pursue that. 
uh, otherwise, uh, my other um, situations with with clients with debt that might not be resolved, that I can take other approaches to deal with it is, for instance, taxes. You know, generally, a lot of times taxes are not discharged in bankruptcy. So we'll do a bankruptcy if they've got taxes that don't go away. I also negotiate payment plans on state taxes, uh, federal taxes, the IRS. And if I think my client has a good case, I'll do uh, offering compromises with federal taxes. I've been successful with those. Other areas, I, I, you know, I, I do get other clients that come back to me with issues. So maybe subsequently they incurred more debt and they're being uh, sued by one credit card. Now I'll I'll, uh, I'll litigate and defend any type of debtor creditor cases. You know, where the the creditors coming after them, say on a credit card or a loan or something like that. So I get other 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 related debtor creditor matters that kind of come out of uh, other bankruptcy. You know, former bankruptcy clients. Uh-huh. What is the goal in that kind of debtor-creditor case where are you just trying to get them to prove that that, that your client has a loan, things like that, or what's the goal? Well, well, first of all, in well, in all jurisdictions, but in ours, we have, we have essentially two law firms here that do a high volume of uh, debtor-creditor where they represent creditors, and their modus operandi is we're just to sue it out, even if it's been discharged in bankruptcy, or if it's been more mainly, even if there's statute of limitations, or if we don't have paper on it. Mm-hmm. And so they, they, and unfortunately, a lot of these debtors just don't defend it. And they, you know, I don't know, we'll know what the percentage is. It's over 50%. They get default judgments. Yeah. I've heard numbers like 90% plus, but. It, it could be, quite frankly, it could be, because you get a sums complaint, there's no court date. It just, and they don't realize it doesn't have to be in court in Minnesota. It's hip. Hip serve service of process commences the, the suit. You get served. They could leave with mom, somebody of suitable age at the house, mm-hmm. and they they don't they throw it in the garbage. Mm-hmm. And, and, and unfortunately, but but the people that do get a hold of you in a timely manner, it's not too difficult to answer the complaint and get into it. You you've some you got statute limitations. You've got do they have the paperwork? And most of these, quite frankly, are purchase debt. Mm-hmm. It's not the original creditor. Mm-hmm. And a multitude of times, they don't have the paperwork to support it. They don't have the evidence to go into court. They don't tell you that. You get into discovery, they, show me the note, show me the guarantee. They don't have it. You know, So you can either get your client off without paying anything or negotiate something that's you know much, much reduced than that they're seeking in the complaint. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, it's always been advantageous. I mean, uh, there's a numerous amount of cases where I can get my client completely off, especially on this purchase debt. Awesome. I mean, it's just, it's it's crazy. So you mentioned tax levies and offers and compromise. I actually, I have a lot of CPA friends, so I've actually heard of offers and compromise from the other side of things, from the, from the CPAs. The tax levy work, uh, particularly for, what is it called? Tax, um, The kind, what's the kind of work where you have a tax issue and then you're calling it a tax levy but it's also um well no a levy is just a levy is uh, uh well a levy is when they're enforcing it trying to collect on it you know mm-hmm. the irs is not bound by the exemptions by the state for instance minnesota you know you can exempt three hundred ninety thousand of your homestead you can exempt 75% of your wages. Mm-hmm. None of that applies to the IRS. Mm-hmm. When they come and garnish, which it's a formula based upon 
your gross income to your exemptions, I believe, it, it ends up being about 80 to 90%. So if they're going to come and take your check, they're getting a big, big chunk of it. As opposed to if the Minnesota Department of Revenue is garnishing you, they're bound by the state exemptions. Hmm. So the most they can take is, is 25%. So the IRS, if, if the IRS sinks their teeth in hmm. and starts garnishing, you got a big problem. Now, the flip side of it is they give you multitude of warnings. It's not just one letter, two. They give you a bunch of letters. You know, mm-hmm. don't ignore us, otherwise we're going to levy you. And generally, they're going to levy your bank account before they start garnishing wages. So when I get a client to, coming to me, I we get on it as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And we try and – depend, it depends on the amount, amount of the debt, but, you know – the biggest hassle dealing with the IRS is when you call in to talk to somebody, you're getting somebody in a different state and a different person. They generally will not assign it to one agent. Mm-hmm. And it's very frustrating. You're on hold for two hours and then you start talking to somebody. They'll have the notes on their computer from the prior conversation you had with them. But the goal when I get involved is I try and get it assigned to somebody local, one person, so we you save a ton of time. Mm-hmm. And if it's if it's an, uh, a substantial amount of taxes owed, you can usually do that. But uh, you know, then then it becomes you know there's a lot of paperwork involved. I'll give you an example. The last one I did, it was for business taxes, nine forty one and nine forty, mainly nine forty one federal taxes, that's, that's... and that amount. Pardon? That's that's not good. That's isn't no, that, isn't that unpaid no. payroll taxes? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And sometimes they, they've been already assessed to the individual under the responsible person doctrine, mm. and sometimes not. Mm-hmm. In any event, in this one, they had not yet been personally assessed, mm-hmm. and they the amount of taxes was over two hundred thousand. Oh wow! And. My client did have an ongoing business, so he want, he didn't want to shut the business down and restart a new business because uh, goodwill and name and what have you. Uh, but long story short, uh, after a lot of tugging and pulling and paperwork on that particular case, we were able to get in. And in the old days, it used to be a lump sum within 30 or 60 days, all of it at once. Mm-hmm. Now they have different programs and you spread it out two years and depend upon how far you go up. But uh, um, in this particular case, we did a... Uh, I believe it's 24 month plan mm-hmm. and ended up being about twelve, thirteen thousand $13,000. So now my client's in it right now. So if he completes it, all the rest of the taxes go away at the end and they have not, and they won't personally assess him. And then they remove their liens. And, but, but the other side of it is you have to be compliant for five years. Otherwise they can res- resurrect the debt that you've, discharge on your offer and compromise. Mm-hmm. But again, and it's it's a win-win for both parties. I mean, they're never going to collect this, this when the numbers get that big. They're never going to collect it. Sure. So, you know, what they can get in hand today is better than nothing. So, so the IRS, they are, I've had a couple where, you know, you have to go back and forth, but uh, you kind of have an idea if you really chart out your client's income and future income and assets because they have a, a pamphlet on how to, you, you could come up with a number if you do it properly, that's probably going to be close to what they'll accept in most instances. Wow. Very cool. Now, now that's the IRS, the state Minnesota, we've never heard of offering compromises just recently. It's been two or three years. 
on their website, they have forms that they say we do offer in compromises now, but don't. it's nothing close to what the IRS does. Mm. And I haven't had the opportunity to, to uh, uh, try and put one through with them yet. I had one that we were going to look at, but they flat out told me my client wasn't a candidate, so don't waste your time. Mm. So. so I remembered what it was called. It's the tax resolution services, something like that. Um, but that can be very profitable if you can, because you have, unlike with student loans, as an example, with with in tax resolution, you have clients that have a lot of money and that are facing large damages and have a real incentive to pay to make those damages go away. Correct. Correct. Yep. So how do you get more of that kind of tax resolution business? Is that something that on the marketing side you're making a special effort for or you just will see what falls in your lap? Well, most of my clients there are either former clients or referrals from other clients or other attorneys, mm -hmm. quite frankly. I don't my marketing is mainly bankruptcy and student loans and and just debtor creditor mm -hmm. you know is is kind of broad well let's talk about that a little bit uh, your other kinds of marketing that you're doing you know we can talk about student loans or we can talk about just straight up bankruptcy what are you doing on the marketing side that's working that other bankruptcy lawyers might be interested in well probably not as much as most attorneys i i uh depend upon mainly from referrals i used to do half page three quarter page back when yellow pages were big and you know that's when there was a lot more banksies being filed you know i've done the pay-per-click uh, internet stuff i've done all that stuff but at the end of the day when i set well, well things have changed over time but mainly right now i'm just uh u utilizing my website and i have a seo company to try and keep me up on top as best we can yeah. Beyond that, it's that's really it. I haven't. I, I used to spend a lot of money marketing, and I've pulled back. Yeah, filings are down over fifty percent since the peak. So, lots of people are trying different things. Have you tried internet advertising, Google AdWords, anything like that? Oh, I, I used to do that, but uh, you know, I, I'm speaking with other people, and my SEO people, uh, you know, they say organic results are, you know, th their their data at least shows that you know one of the better avenues. Like I say, I get I get I probably get a three calls a week from these different entities, uh, pay per clicks, uh, leads, all that type of stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe one a day. Sure. And again, I've tried some of the stuff before. And if the filings are way up, you know, you can justify that. But with the filings so down, you're not the percentages you're going to get from what you're paying for that. It doesn't it doesn't make sense in my view at least. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Where does it start to make sense for you, just in terms of you know? And I'm not a high volume filer. You know, back when I was with a smaller firm, we did TV ads, we did all that stuff. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not doing hundreds of cases a year. You know, I'm yeah. I, I I you know used to be I got referrals. You know, a lot of my clients are cases are more difficult. They they they're not the everyday garden variety consumer banksy case. So a lot of my referrals are uh, are coming out of litigation or some other issues, so they got some baggage with them. Mm -hmm. So somebody may not want to take that particular case because it's not just going to be filing the case. There's going to be an aftermath to it, more than likely in some instances, some adversary work. Yeah. So, so my cases are not just. I mean, I do have uh, you know the garden variety, but but you know other ones that come from referrals have usually got um, something tied to them that's going to be additional work yeah. or more issues involved. Well, just on the bankruptcy, in terms of internet advertising for bankruptcy lawyers, not really speaking to you, but just to the to the listeners of the podcast, I've said it before, but on a high level, for about $35 in a competitive metropolitan area 
and maybe less in a less competitive metropolitan area or a more rural area, you can generate a lead. And if you have your, your marketing and sales set up right, you can convert. I have, a, I have one attorney I was talking to yesterday who one of my clients was telling me that they convert one in four clients have been converting. Uh, one in four leads have been converting into a client. So the I would say that's very good. I mean, if if I could, I would do that. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. With, in a heart, in a heartbeat, yeah. <laughs> well, we should talk after the call then. Sure. Yeah. So that's on the bankruptcy side. The other interesting thing on the private student, uh, private on the student loan side, and I, I do want to talk to you about private student loans in a minute. But on the student loan side, the other really interesting thing is that. Student loan, student loan attorneys, people, or student loan bankruptcy is a keyword on Google that people have not been able to monetize. So Google suggested suggested payment per click for that keyword student loan bankruptcy or st- something like that. It's like two dollars per click instead of on bankruptcy. It's like a their suggested uh, bid is somewhere in the twenty to thirty dollar range. So there's essentially an infinite amount of clicks that you can get at a very reasonable cost in the for the student load side of things. And so if you've really set up a machine that can make money using IBR, invest, uh, income-based repayment programs, and these other things that you've described to me, that's another place where you can get a lot of customers, a lot of customers or a lot of clients very, very cheaply. So that's something to look into maybe. Yeah. I, you know, I, since I've been focusing more on student loans, I haven't gone back. I don't know. It's been Oh, five, six years ago that, that I used to do Google AdWords. I mean, quite, quite intensely, you know, and yeah, you go on and check daily. The, the bids for the different words were, were kind of, it was unique um, how these things would bounce around mm-hmm. and in different, you know, it could change overnight. But yeah, I haven't looked recently with student loans, but I will tell you a lot of these firms, if you see it come up with student loans in bankruptcy, uh, they're getting people to call in, but they don't do any student loan work. Uh, they're just getting refinancing. They're getting people to call in, and they might talk about an undue hardship, and and that's about it. Beyond that, they don't go any further. You follow what I'm saying? Wait, no, say that again. Like, I thought that you were going to talk about student loan refinancing. You know, not refinance. Some of these law firms that advertise for bankruptcy. And then throw in the word student loans. A lot of them don't do any student loan work. The only student loan work they may do is an undue hardship. Yes. You follow me? Yeah. Yeah. No, I get so, that. So they're, they're really just yeah, dangling yeah. this concept of student loan relief from student loans. It's like, it's like the cheese in a mousetrap. And then when you actually get to the bankruptcy, they say, hey, no, uh, actually, we don't really do that work. Yeah, absolutely. Right. They're hoping to get clients that have student loans call in. And because they have a bunch of other debt, hey, you know, Banksy will help you out here. Mm-hmm. Let's clear out the debt and then go go deal with your student loans elsewhere. Yeah, that I'm, type of thing, I guess. I mean, yeah. I suppose that there's a, it's a spectrum of egregiousness when it comes to that. But in general, what you're describing is not something that I think is really that respectable. Right, right. So one of the exciting things about you with the student loan work that you're doing is that you've done work on private student loans. And I know that Austin Smith was co-counsel with you on a couple cases. I interviewed Austin on the podcast earlier and I think he's awesome. And maybe I could ask you to explain some of the work that you're doing in private student loans and, and how that's worked out for you. Sure. Yeah. Austin's a great guy. You know, how we met 
I had an adversary proceeding going on oh, two and a half, three years ago in Minnesota here. And it was an on, it was undue hardship. Plus my client had a, uh, one of the loans was a bar review court. She's an attorney. Uh-huh. And in that particular loan, I pled it was not a, uh, you know, didn't fit within the criteria of 523A8. It was not an educational loan. Mm-hmm. And as I'm going through that case, I'm in the middle of it, and and I had multiple defendants. I had two or, th- yeah, I guess it was two or three different lenders on there. And I, quite frankly, I was able to get one dismissed out right away. They voluntarily dismissed out, which was great. And so, anyways, Austin, I believe caught my name when he was searching the Pacer. court docket at Pacer on that. And then he got a hold of me and he shared with me, which was great, his Campbell case, Henry Campbell, because yeah. he had a bar review course and he won. He got a great decision. Yeah, it's a perfect precedent for you. Exactly. Up to then, there, I believe, were two or three reported cases in a bar review going the other way. So his case pretty much helped me slam dunk my case on that end of it. Mm-hmm. And then he contacted me. He had a client here in Minnesota that had some private student loans on a case in St. Paul. Mm -hmm. So we got together and became co-counsel on that particular case, brought a summary judgment motion on the grounds that the student loans were discharged by the bankruptcy way back, you know, uh, you know, at, at, when the discharge was granted mm-hmm. because they were not, they didn't fit the criteria of 523A8. Mm-hmm. And we, the judge cited it was us in, on partial summary judgment and indicated in order that uh, on one of the provisions, it, it didn't fit the criteria of, as an educational benefit scholarship or stipend. Mm-hmm. And for the remaining, there was other portions we had to prove to finish our case and that was under uh, section 523A8B to you have to it has to you have to show it's not an educational loan that's qualified mm-hmm. as defined under a provision of the of the Internal Revenue Code mm-hmm. and, and that ends up that's where you get into the cost of attendance analysis and that's I believe Austin talked about that in your interview quite in depth mm-hmm. and we didn't need to get into that on that particular case because we ended up settling the case. Mm-hmm. And I'm not aware of any reported cases where they've got into the cost of attendance where they determine how you actually go about that because there's some factual issues on that. And that's why the judge, quite frankly, didn't rule on, on that particular matter. He said we need more discovery and, you know, would go to trial on that. Now, part of it is how do you determine the cost of attendance, even though it's established by the school and it's published on iPads, you know, when you're looking at the school transcript, do you look at it chronologically as you're counting up the federal loans and the scholarships and the grants, mm-hmm. you know, or do you do you take the direct-to-consumer loans last, you know, which a lot of these loans are that we're ligating now are, are student loans that don't come to the financial aid offices, you know, they're, they're direct to the student, so mm-hmm. they don't even show up on the school transcript. So we didn't have to get to that. And again, I, I'm not aware and I don't believe there is because Austin and I talk about this a lot and he would know about it because mm-hmm. he'd, he'd be the one probably making the law that we haven't got to that stage. These cases either settle or, or we're still litigating the cases. So that's been, you know, real good. The, the, the trend that we're seeing across the country are most of the courts now are saying that as far as the provision of 523-88-A-A, uppercase A-2, is that these private student loans are don't fit that criteria and they're not educational benefits. So if you can get over that part of the statute, then 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 you 
to the last part, which is more factual. Mm -hmm. But we have another case that's going on right now in, in Minneapolis, Minneapolis. We have a different judge. And that's set for trial in April. So we'll see what happens with that particular case. But yeah, it's interesting. It's And I think Austin did say that, you know, he spent many, many months studying this in, in the legislative history and what have you and, and came up with, with this with this argument and, and analysis. So, and if you really look at it and, and look at the case law, you know, I think the trend now is, like I say, they're ruling in favor of the, of the consumer, the student loan debtor uh, on these. And eventually, someday, we'll have some decisions that actually get into uh, the cost of attendance argument. Yeah. One of the f cool things that I've discovered in my conversations with Austin, even after the podcast, is that there's really been a shifting of the burden. If you look at a Bruner test or the, for undue hardship, there the the burden is on you for the on behalf of the debtor to prove that there's an undue hardship. But the cool thing about these cost of, cost of attendance cases, and you can, if you're listening out there and you want to learn more about the cost of attendance issue, then you can just search for Bankruptcy Law Success Austin Smith and you'll, you can see a whole 90-minute discussion on this topic. But the cool thing about that is that it's a, it's a shifting burden. So the burden has been shifted to the the creditor's attorney to prove that. So all that stuff that you were talking about in terms of how difficult it is to prove what the cost of attendance is and who do you subpoena and all that stuff you know yes that is difficult but i just want to assure people out there that you don't actually have to prove that that becomes the burden of the creditor's attorney and well i mean the first thing i'll say is that's my belief michael is is, is that your belief as well yes that's correct yeah and the whole thing is is they may not even know how they want to approach that you know, one case you could win on the cost of attendance if you argue chronologically, or in another case, if you say we're going to take the private loans that are direct to consumer, if we look at those lastly, you know, the the, the analysis could come out different ways. You follow me? Because I, I am following you, but but because I've read now a bunch of these cases, and it seems to me that, and I've also talked to Austin about this specific issue. My sense is that. The direct to consumer, that the the um, what is it called when the the school the school certified loans? Yeah, yeah. The school certified loans tend to happen earlier. They tend to be issued in August and paid out maybe at least by September. Whereas the the private student loans, particularly the direct to consumer loans, tend to be later in the process, anyways. So there's tends to be an alignment of those issues, from what I understand. That's correct. Yeah. The, yeah. This. The certified ones on the promissory note, they're actually getting certified by the school. How much money has already been issued? You know, what's the cost of attendance? How much has been issued in other federal? So they're, they're looking actually to try and keep within the cost of attendance. Yeah, the direct to consumer, they're not doing any checking. And quite frankly, these are usually coming at the tail end. Mm -hmm. You know, the students typically are going to get the federal money and it's capped depending upon, you know, if they're uh, undergrad or grad, it's capped on these different types of loans. And then when they need more money, they go to the private lenders and they're going to be typically the, the loans that go through the finance that are certified and go through the financial aid office. Then you get the direct to consumer. These checks are written right out to d debtor and, you know, and go right to their house. They can, there's no uh, control over how the money is going to be used. They can do what they want with it, quite frankly, yeah. you know? So, but yeah, going back to the burden of proof. Yeah. That with the undue hardship, the burn, yeah, the burns on the debtor to show the, 
the uh, undue hardship that, that's going to be uh, that's there to, if you're going to make me pay these loans back for the rest of my life, as opposed to the private loans under the cost of attendance, the burden shifts right away to the creditor. Exactly. And, uh, you know, so that, that burdens on them and, it, and it's a big burden. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. And I think you know, one of the things that the sea change is going to, that's going to happen is not only are the precedents going to improve led by people like you in Austin, but the understanding of the creditors bar is going to, it's going to dawn on them that unlike with the Brunner test, they actually have the burden of proof is on them to, prove the cost of attendance and all these other things and then they're going to they're going to start settling these cases very very quickly. Right, right. In in um where was I here? The back to the undue hardship even though the burden is on the debtor in in the eighth circuit we don't have the Brunner test. We have the totality of circumstances test which is a little a little better for the debtor. Okay. And and it but it's still a difficult difficult task. I mean uh, you know, the, the, the undue hardship cases I've done, I mean, the first one I ever did year after out in practicing, I mean, I, I had a uh, single parent with four kids and my client was legally blind. I put <laughs> it out and we, we, I, I won hands down. I go, great. This is great. After that, every single case, they fight you, they go to trial. There's absolutely no middle ground on these federal loans. They'll fly somebody in from Washington, D.C. with the U.S. Uh, Attorney General's office and fight these things tooth and nail. Wow. And then if you happen to win, they appeal it. Wow. They appeal it. So now you've got a client that could barely afford to go through the, the level of the, the trial at the bankruptcy court level. Then they're appealing the thing. OK, so they made it real, real difficult. Now, you know, then, uh, you know, uh, years back, this uh, the income with the federal loans, the uh, income-based repayment programs and what have you mm-hmm. came out and they were arguing, well, judge, you know, if, the, if she can pay $5 a month, you know, for 20 years, we're, we're great with that, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's their argument to the court in the court. Some of the courts are buying into that. Mm-hmm. There's been published decisions in the past few years that it's not determinative, even though, you know, you, you can pay five bucks a month or whatever under their uh, program. It doesn't mean, you know, they forget to say, yeah, but at the end of that program, that's taxable income. Yeah. You know, if you've got a hundred grand forgiven and you can't show you're insolvent, you're going to be taxed on that hundred grand. So all you're doing is putting another problem on the plate later down the road. Now, granted, once those taxes get three years old and you can discharge them in a bankruptcy, but, but still, but going back to, from what I can see, at least in the, in coming up here, what I see with clients is even though the federal loans are going to be more difficult to discharge and undue hardship, unless you got a super, super good factual case, when you've got them coupled with these private loans, you have a very good chance of discharging the private loans because under the criteria, you know, right before you, you sued this on adversary, they want two grand a month. Judge, their interest rates are eight, nine, 10%. They want, you know, the minimum payment plan, they want is two grand a month. They won't work with me at all. You know, so even you see, so you flip it back. The federal loans, sure, they'll work with me. So in some cases, I'm not even going to, on an undue hardship, go after and try and uh, take the federal loans out because they typically are not going to negotiate at all. But th- you get to the private ones then, and they got 50, 60 grand of, of private ones, you got a good argument for an undue hardship mm-hmm. because of the fact that they're, they're not willing to work out anything. And there's no, there's no requirements like, like the federal uh, you know, loans 
where they're mandated by federal law on these payment p- programs. So there, there's a better argument today with these private loans and on new hardships, quite frankly. And on top of that, if you've seen in the last week, there's some discussions through the president's office that they're talking about making it easier to discharge student loans without on new hardship. I, just... I haven't seen any deep you know, any fine details, but there, there's talk of that. You know, I was going to say that I just read about that yesterday, but you know what it is? We, right before, we're friends now on LinkedIn, and you posted about it, and I read the article that you posted about the about the administration lessening the yeah. standards. So that's, that's... We'll see where it goes. It might just be lip service. We'll see where it goes, but, yeah. uh, you know, to what extent, I mean. There's got to be other other ways to deal with this, you know. Well, that's exciting. One of the business models that Austin talks about in terms of discharging private student loans through this, you know, interpret through what he would say is the proper in- interpretation of what is it, five twenty three A eight? Correct. Is that you can do a reverse contingency fee where if you dismiss or just if you get a hundred thousand dollars in loans discharged vanished through whatever mechanism you can you can ask for a reverse contingency fee of 10 to 15 percent in that case it would be 10 to fifteen thousand dollars so that's one way that that you can make money from this have you tried a reverse contingency fee or are you are you more in the fixed fee early model right now i haven't got into that yet with with the cases i've got pending now but it's something I will explore with other clients going, you know, as more cases come through the door mm-hmm. uh, on these private student loans in, in Banksy context. Now, outside of Banksy, though, I've got a dozen cases going on right now in state court. And those cases can be, uh, you, you know, or for instance, you've heard of National Collegiate Trust. They've yes. been suing people uh, for the last three, four years. Well, we have one firm in Minnesota that mainly does well, handles all their litigation. And I've got six or seven cases pending right now. You know, there was a consent order that came out last fall that dealt with Transworld System, who is their agent, who essentially it, it handles all the underlying litigation, the discovery, what have you. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that submit affidavits for summary judgment, and they're the ones that show up in court to testify. Mm-hmm. Well, essentially, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau didn't shut them down, but they, uh, they've scrutinized their practices and they've, they've, they're in the process of auditing all, all these cases, most of the cases, if their student loan trust fit within that criteria. So my cases that are pending right now are all still waiting the outcome of that audit and um, absent or depend upon the, what comes out of the audit, you know, we'll see if we continue on, but I've had cases, well, my very first one that I had with them, I answered it right away and served discovery and they kept asking for more time to answer the discovery more time more time more time mm-hmm. and then came back would you would you take 50 cents in a dollar said no we want to we want the paper get you know answer the discovery mm-hmm. our clients decided we'll dismiss it with prejudice completely done client didn't have to pay a penny wow but the ongoing cases now you know, I've, uh, they're all in litigation. And, and I, quite frankly, I have a hearing next week uh, on one of them in St. Paul. I don't know how they're going to get a competent witness, what they're going to change to come in and prove their case. Because these things are layered in the trusts and they don't have, you know, personal knowledge of what they're testifying to. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I think I read about this in the New York Times where they were saying that 
I think the article was about National Collegiate Trust and how they just don't even have remotely any paper trail for most right. of the loans. Now, 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 some of them they do. Now, also, in, so that, that 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 there was an actual order entered back last fall with Transworld. On the same day, there was supposed to be a consent judgment entered against National Collegiate Trust in court, and I think it was in Delaware. Well, that got put on hold because they were arguing who owns the trust and stuff. That still hasn't been done. Mm. So that's still up in the air, but there's enough there. That That's just one of the uh, private student, letter, uh, student loan creditors I deal with. There's other ones, a couple other ones out there that are buying up debt, mm. and I litigate those two, and those are not National Collegiate Trust. For instance, the underlying debt might be Navient. I'm trying to think, or Citibank. And on, on those, they may or may not have their paperwork. But even if they have their paperwork and have a, a fairly solid case, you can negotiate those down significantly and, and get something that your client can handle. So, again, it comes back to if if the person getting sued, if they get, are on the ball and, and don't let it go by default, you know, you're, you're going to do much better with an attorney than, than getting a default judgment against you. So. Mm-hmm. What kind of settlements are you seeing these creditors make for the private for the student loans? Yeah, uh, twenty thirty cents in a dollar, mm-hmm. and, and no interest, and and a payment they can afford though. That's the thing, mm-hmm. a payment they can afford. I've got one guy. It was over a hundred hundred eighteen thousand, hundred twenty thousand. Mm-hmm. I think it was like four or five loans, and it took a lot of going back and forth with the opposing counsel, but I got the debt reduced significantly. I mean, his payments are like, we have to do, we're doing a graduate, like 50 bucks a month to start with. And they go up a little over time wow. because of uh, his situation, but something he can afford. And they realize it too, that you, you know, cause the flip side is you guys want to play hardball. I'll put my guy in a chapter 13 for five years or perpetual chapter 13. You're going to get a few dollars a month and that's it. And then when it gets done and if they're not, they're not discharged, I'll put them in another chapter 13. Uh-huh. Good luck. Try yeah. and collect, uh-huh. you know, and that's, that's survival mode, you know, so they get it, you know, they get it. And this is purchase debt. You know what they buy it for 10, 15 cents on the dollar. If, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's uh, pretty cool because I know that a lot of bankruptcy lawyers get into this to, to help clients, to help them get the fresh start that the bankruptcy code promises. And student loans has been such a large exemption, such a big loophole that's been preventing people from getting that fresh start. So can you talk about that just for a minute? Like how satisfying is it to help someone who's almost suicidal because of these student loan problems and then you, you solve that for them? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, uh, you also think taxes are, are, are the worst debt. And, you know, the more and more you get into it and you read through all this, I mean, student loans are by far the worst kind of debt you can have. Mm-hmm. And to try and find out some type of resolution to help your client, I mean, it's just, it, it's great. I have clients that say, I'll just quit my job. I'll become self-employed. I mean, I have t- attorneys call me uh, and, and got, you know, they're close to retirement and, you know, should I try and cut a deal with these student loans? These are private or federal loans. And, and, uh, or should I just let it go? You know, they're self-employed. So they're essentially, you know, they're not, they're, they can't be garnished, you know, they're, uh, and they, you know, they have an LLC or corporation that doesn't owe, owe the debt, you know, it's a separate entity so they can continue to work and make money, you know, and, and so, and they're just, you know, trying to get, get through life, you know, and, and can't, because the student loan amount is so, so high. These are attorneys, though, that are making presumably six figures a year. 
not, not, not everybody. No, that this particular one I'm talking about is not making that kind of money. I mean, okay. if they were making that money, they'd be paying on it. They just have, you know, they're, they're making a, a decent living, but no, they're, they're not, you know, it's just that with penalties and interest and collection fees, the amount has gotten so high. I mean, all my clients, you talk, you look at the principal amount of the debt and then you look at what the debts today, if 10 or 15 years have gone by, it's astronomical. It's mm-hmm. crazy. Mm-hmm. 20,000 could turn into a hundred thousand. And it's, you know, it's, 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 um, you know, so. Well, I feel lucky cause I, I, I spent five years of my career. The first five years of my career, I, I spent on wall street, which I'm not super happy about cause I didn't continue in finance, but it did let me pay off my loans. And so, you know, after hearing so many student loan horror stories, I'm glad at least I, I, I did that, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's uh, likewise with me. My student loans were not that much back when I attended school, and and I was able to take care of them in a short period of time. But, but you know, in, in today's education and uh, the amount of the, the the student loan, you know, that a student's coming out of. I mean, I've I've got some, I've uh, a person called me the other day. I mean, this well, they combined husband and wife six hundred thousand in federal loans. Um, I think that's one of the higher ones I've seen. Um, we're going to get them into an IBR, but you know I've had some people with three hundred. Did you say six hundred thousand in federal only? So there's presumably more private student loans. Yeah, no, I don't think they had any private. These are old, old loans. Um, oh wow! And they husband and wife consolidated at some point, which you don't see too often with it. Consolidate, you know, two person loans. Mm-hmm. But I'm talking about just a number. That's six hundred, but. I've had other clients, you know, three hundred, four hundred thousand, yeah. and uh, and some without even getting their degree up to two hundred thousand without a degree yet. Wow! I mean, so yeah, it's it. Did Austin ever know. tell you that story about the million dollar, uh, the student loan, the guy who had a million dollars in private student loans? No, was that discussed on your podcast with him? I can't remember if it was on the podcast or after, but it was it was a case I believe in California where. Someone. It was one of his earlier cases where someone had a million dollars in private student loans. Oh wow! Crazy. So, yeah. Well, I I, I want to wind things down, but before we go, I want to give you an opportunity. Oh, I I want to ask you about the Volunteer Lawyers Network, where I believe you volunteer to do to help people with bankruptcy. Is is that right? Yeah, uh, probably every other month I do what we call bankruptcy screening. Mm-hmm. Way back when I started it years ago, you would actually go down to their offices and sit down with them. They'd, they'd give you lunch and you'd uh, be on the phone for two hours. They have people that are pre-screened and qualified for their services where you're determining if they're in need of a bankruptcy and also just answering questions. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it'll just be, you know, giving them advice and, and it might be they offered through Volunteer Lawyers Network um attorney to write letters to creditors because a lot of them are judgment proof mm-hmm. and yeah i've been doing that a year out of practice i still continue to do it i used to take some cases too but i don't actually do the cases anymore but i'll mentor other attorneys and and do the bankruptcy screening yeah mm-hmm. awesome well i want to thank you so much for for being on the podcast I, I learned a lot and i had a lot of fun so thank you so much for for talking with us yes and i appreciate you having me on bob Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.